welcome back to What Were You Thinking? I am joined by Alistair Campbell. Alistair rose to prominence as Tony Blair's Director of Communications in Number 10 and has remained a household name till this day. He is widely believed to be the inspiration of Malcolm Tucker in the thick of it and has published countless books, most recently volume eight of his famous diaries. Now, I thoroughly enjoyed recording this episode. We cover a wide range of topics, including what makes a good leader, his thoughts on Keir Starmer, and some of his most memorable experiences whilst in Downing Street. This episode is supported by WaterAid, who are working to bring clean water, good hygiene and decent sanitation wash to everyone everywhere by 2030. They are working to support governments in developing countries to respond to the twin threats of the COVID-19 pandemic and the increasingly challenging effects of climate change. And investing in water, sanitation and hygiene saves lives and helps to build resilient communities in some of the poorest countries on Earth. Now, the global water and sanitation crisis is stark. To put it into perspective, two billion people don't have safely managed water for drinking, cooking or personal use. Four billion people don't have safely managed sanitation. And in the middle of a pandemic, one in four healthcare facilities worldwide don't have a basic water supply. So to reduce infant and maternal deaths, doctors and nurses need to have access to good hand washing. To provide more girls with a decent education, they need access to good hygiene services. And with increasingly volatile weather patterns, sanitation services need to be resilient. Crucially, to prevent disease, people need basic access to soap and water. So these are all ambitions WaterAid shares with the UK government. But these laudable goals will never be realised whilst funding from the UK aid is being cut by up to 80%. The UK should be stepping up to meet these challenges rather than stepping back. Well, Alistair, thank you so much for joining What Were You Thinking? It's a really great time because you have just published another book, Volume 8 of the Alistair Campbell's Diaries, Rise and Fall of the Olympic Spirit, covering 2010 to 2015. Volume 8. And, um, you know, every time I have a new guest on, I quickly scan their Wikipedia page before just, just to check. And yours is enormous. And um, the fact that we are already on volume eight, obviously, uh, speaks volumes, terrible pun. But, you know, where where do, where do we start? But maybe it would be nice to just start with a place as to what, yeah, what place has impacted your thinking and and possibly politics, Alistair? Yeah. Um, now, how much do you want me to keep it to politics and how much do you want me to sort of go wider? You can go wider. Yeah. yeah if, I th- if I think of the, when, when you, when... I hear about important places. So, for example, one of the most important places in my life is Burnley Football Club um, and that whole community. And I think that stems actually from, in terms of maybe political influence, Keithley, where I was born. Um, I wasn't from a very political background. My parents weren't that political. They were interested in politics, but they weren't, they weren't political activists. But growing up in Keithley, I became you know, quite young, conscious of, there were rich people and there were poor people. There were white people and there were Asian people. And the Asian people seemed to live in places that weren't quite as nice as where the white people lived. And they didn't seem to have the same sorts of jobs. And they used to get people being horrible to them and stuff. And I think that I never felt that. I I, I remember we lived up at the, the top of the town. My dad was a vet, but a very nice house at the top of the town. They were walking to the town. I had to go through an area that was, you know, very working class, very Asian. And I always sort of liked stopping and talking to people and, and what have you. But I, so I think that's where I, I felt a kind of vague sense of I am uh, coming from quite a nice background, but I'm, I'm with the poor people and I'm with the with the non-white people are being persecuted. That's kind of what I felt. And also my best friend at primary school was a guy, we've kept in touch forever, a guy called John Bailey. And he was, you know, he and I, such different backgrounds and everything. And and, uh, and I used to, he used to love coming to our house because we had like, you know, loads of room and a garden and everything else. And I used to love going to his house because I thought, this is earthier. 
<laughs> and um, and then I'd say where that sort of vague sense of being sort of political, I think cemented was Cambridge when I went to university, and I did not like it. And I, there were so many people there, the likes of which I, I honestly didn't know people like that existed. Um, yeah, you know, I know I know the Bullingdon Club is Oxford, but it's like whatever the Cambridge equivalent of the Bullingdon Club was, and. So I didn't know that people like Johnson and Cameron and Osborne existed, you know? Um, so they, there's a few places. And so how did you, re- how did, how did you react to that revelation of those characters and, and their backgrounds? Probably quite badly in that, well, I reacted angry in a way. I think I did become quite angry. I was drinking too much anyway, but I, yeah, I used to get into fights a lot and I just thought they were, comp- am I allowed to say wankers? <laughs> you are on this pad- podcast yeah, yeah I just thought there was you know there were like these remember there was a group at my college who used to turn up in a Friday night and they were all dressed in uniform and they wore medals I thought where did you get them from they obviously bought them um and and it was like you know and and, and they, they kind of it's I know quite dorky that's pretty dorky but I know you shouldn't sort of judge people on how they speak and what have you, but the, this a level of poshness and absurdity in the way they spoke that I just I just felt they're not they're not in my planet. And it's not just they're not in my country; they're not in my planet. And yet, what I realised was that they, you know, within that sort of institutional setting, they had a lot of power. And I think people from a, you know, a, a lesser well, I wouldn't call it lesser, but, you know, uh, 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 in, in our class system, a lower down the pecking order place had a lot less power, less influence, maybe less confidence as well. Um, I've always, you know, I'm, and it, when I do talk in schools, I kind of, I, you know, I always feel private schools don't struggle to get decent speakers. So I focus almost exclusively on state schools. Yeah. The times that I have maybe gone to private school, the one thing I... I often think that you notice most amongst the difference in the in the students is this the the, the, the private school kids. Put it this way: when you go to a state school and you meet you meet a kid who's just unbelievably confident, right? It feels a bit exceptional. Yeah. Whereas I think sometimes you go to the private schools and you you sort of feel that's what they're being given. Now, whether that comes from their education or their background or sort of innate arrogance, I don't know. No, I 100% agree. I mean, I grew up in Holland and, you know, went to school there and the system is so different. So yeah. I, I always find it fascinating. And, you grew up in Holland? Yeah, yeah. Do you speak Dutch? I do, Alistair, yeah, I do. do, you want, do you want, are you Dutch? I'm half Dutch, yeah. yeah oh, wow, yeah. do you want to hear me speak Dutch? I would love to hear you speak Dutch. Are you ready? I am, yeah. Okay. I have the spelled. Very good. Yeah, heel goed. Heel is goed. It? Yeah, heel goed, Alistair, yeah. <laughs> that was from my busking days. Oh, wow. In yeah. Amsterdam. Do you busk in Amsterdam? I'll tell you my favourite. The, the guilder was the perfect busking currency because everybody gave a guilder. Yeah. All they gave notes, right? But a guilder was worth something. Whereas if you were in, you know, a franc at that time was worth a lot less. I can't remember what a mark was worth, but the guilder was the perfect busking coin. Yeah. And everybody gave you a guilder. Um, and my favourite towns for busking wasn't Amsterdam actually. My favourite towns were Utrecht, Breda, yeah, yeah, Breda, uh, and Rotterdam. Oh, well, I went to university in Utrecht, so there you go. Did you? Yeah, yeah, after my bachelor there. Yeah, Very just good. before I moved back to London. So yeah, yeah. well, that, that, well, I'm I'm sort of slightly um, mildly offended they weren't part of your original answer or place that have impacted. <laughs> it's great but uh, I I thought it was all about policy actually Maastricht was very big for me because I was there for the the treaty negotiations as a journalist there were so many journalists there I ended up had to stay in this little bed and breakfast on the uh, what was it called it was like literally they they had one spare room and it was like a child's room (laughs) nowhere to the place was sort of you know every hotel had been booked for months and I ended up in this tiny little uh, and, and worse than that, it was a girls' bedroom. It was like pink bed and you know all these sort of really. <laughs> well, Maastricht is all... beautiful. That is a beautiful is town. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there you go. You didn't know I could speak fluent Dutch. One second. No. Well, there you go. There you go. You learn something new every day. So, um, what about 
people then? Uh, which um, yeah, which people throughout your life have impacted? Uh, well, both your thinking and and, and life more fundamentally. Um, it's funny. I, I've thought about this, uh, having known what your podcast's about, and it keeps changing. Changing. So when you asked it right then, because we've just been talking about Dutch and languages, actually, who popped into my head was my German teacher, Mr. Webster. <laughs> um, and then, and if I think about why I love languages so much, I'd probably say somebody like, um, like Flaubert, because he, particularly Madame Bovary, that, you know, sometimes when you, you realise, do you know what, I love this language. I think it was when I read Madame Bovary in French for the first time. Mm. Um, and then I think if I, if I think about my politics, I think Fiona, my partner, is incredibly important because, you know, like I say, when I was going through life, my teenage years and my university days, in my view, I was political, but in a very disorganised, anarchic kind of way. There were, you know, I didn't like the other side. I didn't like those people who were like that. But I think what Fiona had was a sense of politics and political organisation. And actually, both her parents were incredibly important in that as well. Hmm. Um, her dad, Bob, they're both Labour, lifelong members of the Labour Party. Her mum, Audrey, who's still alive, uh, and dad, who, who was a, he was a wartime pilot, but then journalist, uh, worked for Tribune, uh, very big in the sort of newspaper unions and, and very, 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 very Labour. And so when Fiona and I met as journalists, trainee journalists, then we came out to London, we lived there. So I was becoming a journalist on the mirror, Labour. Uh, Fiona actually was on the Express, as was her dad. So they were like, you know, both massively Labour, but working for that paper. And then the next person I'm going to mention is Neil Kinnock, because mm. he was Labour leader when I was a general news reporter. And I got this job a task for the weekend I was a young reporter and they asked me to go and basically be a minder because what had happened was that the mirror had persuaded Neil to get all of his sort of living relatives into one place and they were going to do this giant picture of the Kinnock clan as it were so cousins and uncles and aunts and you know and so there were about I don't know 50 100 people all in this hotel, Drury Lane Hotel it was. So I was sort of given the job of making sure that no other newspapers found out this was going on and if they did, that I kept them out because it was quite a nice thing, you know, getting old. So, and it was, I'll tell you exactly when it was, when it, was. it was the weekend of the Bradford City fire. Mm. Um, and I remember it really vividly because Robert Maxwell was the owner of the Mirror and he was phoning me up saying, we must get Neil Kinnett to come with me on a helicopter trip to, to Bradford to go and look at the fire. And we were, Neil and I both instantly saying that is the tackiest, most awful thing. So we sort of bonded over that. And, and you know, became, we, we, you know, we're good friends to this day. I was actually talking, talking to him yesterday. Um, but he made me think that actually... I needed to go into political journalism, not, not just general news. I enjoyed being a general news reporter, but that was the thing that made me think, right, I want to get into Westminster. Mm. And Neil's obviously, Neil's important. And then, of course, you know, <laughs> let's go with the obvious one. Tony's important because when he became leader, he asked me to work for him, and that sort of, you know, <laughs> it changed our lives in irre irrevocably, uh, you know, in many good ways and some not so good. Yeah. Um, so he's important. Uh, is that enough people? That's loads of people. No, that's really interesting. I know Mandela is very close to you as well. You mentioned uh, well, he, he's, about him quite I'd a lot. I'd say he's, he's somebody who I always think about when I, whenever I'm losing faith, mm. which, you know, you look at what's going happens on a lot. at the moment. Well, it does happen a lot at the moment. You've got the worst government in the history of the planet. You've got Johnson, who's just awful. I've known him for a long time. Uh, you've got 130,000 deaths from COVID, you've got the economy being smashed, you've got corruption, cronyism, you've got standards being debased, and they're, you know, leading Labour in the polls. Um, you've had four years of Trump sort of waking up every morning and just thinking, how the hell is that guy president? So whenever that is happening, 
I think, okay, there are lots of reasons to think that things are never going to get better, that politics fails and so forth. And then I, I do, I think of Mandela and I think that guy spent 27 years in jail and then he came out and he became the president of the first non-white yeah. president of South Africa. That's politics. Yeah, that, I mean, yeah, it's an incredible, incredible story. So I know you've written many books, but uh, I read one of them last summer, which is called Winners. And uh, for anyone listening, highly recommend it. Really, really enjoyed it. And it's just really interesting how you draw. Why did you read it, by the way? Several what? years after it came out. I know. Why? it's what, I know. I'm, I'm always, I tend to be a bit behind the times, I guess. I think I'd had it for a few years. And then I've really started reading a lot more since COVID. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah. And I, uh, stood out to me so yeah so I read it uh over summer and I know our mutual friend snapped me reading it <laughs> messaged it to you at the time um and yeah it is quite a few years later but it's still very relevant yeah uh, it's, it's a timeless book so and there's many uh, particularly really... the bit where ahead of the David Cameron calling the Brexit referendum I write about how Cameron's problem is not understanding the difference between strategy and tactics Ooh. Just throw that in. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> well, yes, you, you you draw the parallels between uh, sportsmen and, and politicians, and it's really, really interesting. And uh, one of the things you talk about is the power and the importance of teams. Mm -hmm. And what I found, thought was really interesting is you talk about how for many people entering Westminster, it's a very personal decision and therefore quite probably individualistic in nature, and they might underestimate how fellow teammates can help them in politics. And I just wondered, like, mm -hmm. you know, in, in, a, in, a, in an environment where trust is limited, shall we say, what advice do you, would you give to people operating in there currently and in the future to, to try and forge that culture of team, that team oh. culture? I think one of the reasons I wrote the book is because at the time... I can't imagine why I was thinking this, but I sort of felt that both Britain and the Labour Party were slightly losing their winning ways. Um, and, you know, as you said, this volume of diaries, the rise and fall of the Olympic spirit. Mm. I so we've been, we'd been through the Olympics, which was just, you know, an extraordinary thing. And yet I felt something was going quite badly wrong. It's a really um, good title, actually, I thought. Oh, what thank it's worth. You. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I felt, I felt things were going really, really badly wrong. And so I wanted to, in a sense, partly it was an excuse just to go out and talk to really interesting people that I admire um, and also to, to bring together some of the things I've done in campaigns and politics and so forth. I've always been obsessed with sport. I've always been, I've always been obsessed with teamship, actually. Um, I think one of the reasons I love football, one of the reasons I love cricket, um, I, I've always understood it ever since I was a kid that it's about the team. You know, it's, it's, mm. you can have, when I used to go and watch Yorkshire as a, as a kid, and of course you had, you know, you had great batsmen like Jeff Boycott and you had great bowlers like Freddie Truman, and you, but yeah, you, you, you had the guys, you had the Brian Closest who were, you know, it was a team. They, and, and I think I sensed that and I sensed it in football. I can watch a football match and I can learn things about politics by decisions that are being made by, I don't know what it is. It's just the way my mind works, I guess. But I think for people in politics today, I mean, I've always, I like to, I hope I've always been quite a good team player. It doesn't mean I don't fall out with people because I can fall out with people. But I've always seen my role when I was working with Tony Blair, for example, I always felt I was, I, I, I was, I was part of the team. I wasn't doing it for me. Yeah. Um, and you know, I don't know if you know this, but Tony Blair's nickname for me was Kino, <laughs> which I think sometimes was meant as an insult when I went over the top and lost my temper and what have you. But actually, I hope he meant it as you kind of, you're at the heart of it and you're giving your all all the time for the team. And I think that I would say that now that you look at somebody who's prime minister at the moment, Boris Johnson, who I don't think is a team player. I think he is really mainly about himself. So therefore, this is probably advice that, you know, people might think, well, that's how you get on, right? But I would argue that to get on in any venture, it's important to understand the importance of teamship and teamship as in all levels of the organisation being brought in. 
if you look at you know some of the stuff that he's done um oh, let's not go down there i get boring going on about him but you know if, if i if i look back on our time um when we were all firing on full cylinders and we were all basically working together well we were unbeatable mm. you know we and, and when it fell apart was when that all went wrong a bit um yeah i think we've had uh, well sally morgan's been on this podcast as well okay. and she she talked uh, a bit about the strength of, of the team and it really uh really stands out I well think, do you know what period i was meaning there that the sort of you know if you think about tony and gordon um, well, so in opposition, we had we, we had this kind of unofficial big four, which was Tony Gordon, John Prescott, Robin Cook, and they met before the shadow cabinet. And Jonathan Powell and I were there as well, and we'd sort of just go through things. Now, when those four, and when Peter Mandelson and I were on song together, and those four were on song together, honestly, it felt like us against the Tories felt like Barcelona against Bristol Rovers. It, mm. it just felt we were unbeatable, right? When that fell apart, or with any, you know, and it could be one part of it or two parts or three parts, we all got weaker. You look at what's happening in Scotland now with Salmon and Sturgeon. You know, their cause is weakened by the fact that that very strong mm. team has, for whatever reason, foundered. Now, Nicola Sturgeon's now in power. She's got a different team, but it doesn't mean that that hasn't weakened her because it has. And I would say that, you know, in politics in particular, because it's, yeah, everybody's got an ego and everybody's kind of climbing the pole and all that stuff. But I do think the team players are the ones that, you know, because the better example of getting there in the end is Joe Biden. I think Joe Biden's a team player. Yeah. I think he's been, I think he's been a team player all his life. It doesn't mean he hasn't got massive ambition. You don't get to be president if you don't have massive ambition. But I think he's made his name as a team player. Yeah, and, um, and forged huge loyalty as a result, yeah. no doubt. Yeah, and I think that makes him a better president. Mm. And one of the one of the many things that made Trump a terrible president was his utter narcissism. Yeah, doesn't really care about other people. If you don't care about other people, you shouldn't be in politics, in my view. Yeah, totally. Um, so I think it's I think it's it's understand the team, understand and the team. By the way, I'm not just talking about um, the the sort of big people. I'm talking about, you know, I, I used to give, whenever we had a campaign, I always say the first rule of a political campaign, we don't have a campaign until the bus drivers are happy. Yeah. Right? The guys who drive the coach and have to get up an hour earlier than you do to get it ready, they've got to be part of the team. They are part of the team. And what Sally, the point that Sally was making, Sally Morgan, um, funny enough, we, had, we did a little thing the other day. It was like a Zoom thing for somebody's birthday who was part of the kind of Tony Blair team from the whole way through. And, you know, what was, and Tony actually made the point, he said, do you think the, um, do you think sort of Cameron's team and Theresa May's team and John Major's team, do you think they all do this? Hmm. It was, we were all the same people. And when Tony, Tony's last week as prime minister, he had a dinner at Chequers, maybe his last month, he had a dinner at Chequers for the people who'd been with him from, from the start. And, you know, it was impressive how we'd stayed together. We'd had fallouts. I was sitting next to Peter Mandels. We had fallouts, mm. but we were still together and we're still part of the same team. And that's really interesting. But, but so how did you forge that? Well, listen, I think in any team, it's like back to football, hiring the right people is so important. Um, but I think it's, and, and, and when you're hiring them, when you're hiring them, it's about their character as much as about their talent. Yeah. So why was somebody like so you, you take somebody like um who is there that you would know pat mcfadden okay so pat mcfadden's been a minister he's still an mp he's now on the front bench again but what made him such a fantastic team player back then back in 1994 to 1997 uh and then when we were in government when he was kind of advising on the scotland act and all that sort of stuff was that pat was he, he, he just he's He's a team player, you know. He's not going to worry if you say to him, uh, "Oh, Pat, this thing you, that, that, you know, I'm, I'm really, really struggling with this thing I'm doing. I'm, we've got this speech to do. Da, da. Listen, can you take it off me? Just go and do it. Can you, can you draft something or whatever?" And you know, he just do it. He didn't think that's not my job. Yeah. 
you know, yeah. he was a team player. And the other thing I'd say you need is, is a culture where people can criticise upwards as well as downwards. Yeah. In fact, if anything, I'd say one of Tony's strengths was he tended not to criticise downwards, he expected us to criticise upwards. Mm. Um, and, you know, and, and that's definitely one of my kind of principles. I mean, you know, if I think back to my time in, in the number 10 and the kind of many quite difficult times, one of them, if you remember the so-called dodgy dossier, which was not the September 2003 paper on weapons of mass destruction, it was the one that was allegedly taken off the internet and presented as blah, blah. And the whole story has become completely conflated, but let's not go there. But actually the guy who did that, the guy who did that, terrible mistake, right? I've never, ever, ever said who it was. I think if you've got, you, 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 you've got somebody in your team and if they balls up, you take the hit. Yeah, 100%. Oh, that's, that's really good advice. We haven't even gotten to the advice question yet. So my <laughs> goodness. And so one of the other things you've spoken a lot about is um, so many politicians suffer from bad reputation in, in general. And uh, you've spoken about how many seem either incapable or uh, incapable to change it or they just assume it's impossible. Why do you think that is? And, and how, how could they or us collectively try and get a bit of a better reputation going? What's, what would your PR advice be, Alistair? I don't think it's about PR. I think it's about, you know, the reality of what you do. And I mean, look, this guy. You get the reputation you deserve. No, not necessarily. No. Not necessarily. But your reputation will flow from what you do. I mean, I would argue the current government is not getting the reputation it deserves. Otherwise, they wouldn't be ahead in the polls and they wouldn't be having newspapers treating them with kid gloves. Um, but if I, if I look at, and also they are really changing politics. They're changing politics fast. You know, they're, they're, they're absolutely demolishing things that have been taken for granted for all of our lifetime. This thing about, about lying in the House of Commons. And you still got Lindsay Hoyle the other day, the speaker saying, no honourable gentleman or honourable lady would say it would deliberately mislead the House. Well, I'm sorry, they do. And it's not just anybody doing it, it's the Prime Minister. That's changing politics. This stuff about some of the contracting and what have you, that's changing politics. You know, can you, can you imagine? Could you imagine what an outcry that had been if we'd have come into power in 1997? The first thing we did was spent 2.6 million quid on a new briefing room and we painted it red, right? They've done it and nobody's batting an eyelid. They painted it blue. So they're changing politics fast. Um, now, long term, I think it will damage the reputation of politics. The first, so you, the answer to your question, how do we improve the reputation of, of politics? Let, first of all, let's not pretend it's ever had a great reputation. Politics has always mm. been there to be, to uh, be kicked. Yeah. But I think you have to do it through... The tragedy of it is the bulk of politicians, I, I, think, I think, are genuinely well-motivated. But I think we've got into a place, Johnson and Trump are both symbols of this, where to become very well-known in politics... It's not enough anymore just to be very smart and well-read and clever and care about people and make good speeches and have ideas. That's not enough anymore. Mm. You've got to be kind of, you know, a character and funny and have a TV background and all this sort of nonsense. So I would say it's harder than it's ever been to cut through and to break through when you're just a genuinely motivated good person trying to do good things. That's a real problem for our politics. Do you think that that explains maybe why Keir Starmer isn't doing as well in the polls currently? I think partly. I think I think it's I think Keir's a very decent guy. I think everybody who knows him well would say he's a really decent guy. I think people who know Johnson well tend to say the opposite. Um, I think that Keir's serious, fact-based, focuses on detail, works hard. Um, and people look at him, this is his big advantage, say, over Jeremy Corbyn. People look at him and think, I can imagine that guy's prime minister. Now, my problem with where our politics is gone is until a few years ago, most people looked at Boris Johnson and said, you can't imagine that guy's prime minister. Now he's the prime minister. Mm. Um, so the game, the rules are changing. And I think for Labour, I do think they need to 
really work through, I don't know what the answer is, by the way, but they really need to work through how you handle differently a very unconventional government. This is not a conventional government. We've never had a government like this before. You know, when Mrs. Thatcher was prime minister, whatever we thought about what she did in her policies, you sort of felt that when she stood up at a podium or she stood up at the dispatch block of the House of Commons, she was going to base her arguments in fact, right? She wasn't going to, she wouldn't do something like create a border in the Irish Sea and say it wasn't there. She wouldn't create a border in the Irish Sea and then say, well, actually it was the European Union that put it there. She'd, she'd base her arguments in fact. And, you know, I've noticed, for example, in COVID, with relation to COVID, Keir, I completely understand why he felt national crisis, let's try and all pull together, give the government the benefit of the doubt. So the government pocket that. Whenever he asks a remotely difficult question, Boris Johnson accuses him of being all over the place and this and that, and, and, and you know, your job is to support me kind of thing. Mm. Um, and and it, it's sort of gaslighting. And so I don't think Labour has worked out how you deal with that very different sort of politics. Added to which, you know, Johnson, he's out there all the time, every day, putting on a hard hat, wearing a yellow jacket, saying something, doing his home videos, getting them trotted out on social media, getting the bots firing behind them and all that. They're just very, very active and very, very busy. Mm. I feel that Labour's not, not, not active enough. Not, and I think that, you know, the, the, if you, I know volume eight's out at the moment. If you're going to read volume one, 94 to 97, because we won such a big landslide, people are thinking, oh, well, that must have been easy. It was really, 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 really hard. Every day, really, 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 really hard. That's interesting, yeah. So, you know, I think they've all, and it's not just about Keir, by the way, the whole front bench team has got to just be more active. And be more like a team. And the team thing as well, exactly. You know, what, what you have, I think, it's too often in politics... You can understand it more readily in government, right? If you're doing the health job or the education job, you're doing that, right? If you're in opposition, when you get on the radio and on the telly and you make a speech, don't feel you have to just stick to your brief. You know, make big arguments about why you need a Labour government. Don't just talk about, you know, how they're cocking it up. Make big arguments, what Labour's about, what it's for, why a Labour government is better than the Tory government. So, yeah, in opposition, don't get siloed. One of the things I, that strikes me is um, the need to always you know, feed the beast, as the expression, to always give the newspapers a story so you have a front foot and you know, you're, you're setting the agenda. Was that, did that apply as much as it does in this sort of 24-7 news cycle now? Um, does it, did it apply as much in you, when you were a number 10? I think, it's, I think it's different now. But some of the rules and, and principles still apply. I think if you let others set the agenda for you on a given policy, on a given situation, then it will. It, there's a danger it can run away with you, and that can be exacerbated now by social media bots, all that stuff. However, where I think it's easier uh, on the political side of the fence now, I've been amazed, for example, how you know. The media just seem to have accepted a year into the pandemic that they shouldn't be allowed to be physically present with the, the ministers doing briefings. That's weird. They accept these videos that, the, you know, they've been made in number 10 by people paid for by the taxpayer to make Boris Johnson, you know, look good, sound good. And they're just being used by the media. I don't know what would have happened if we'd done that. And I think that goes back to the point about the media. It's just so much harder, I think, to be a media organisation with so much competition. The you know sales of newspapers have you know collapsed. They haven't really worked out yet how to kind of ma master the digital world in a way that. So then there's they're not, you know, they're struggling to stand still most of the time, and that makes it easier, I think, for those who are, if you like, the newsmakers. Uh, I mean, look, how did Trump communicate? Okay, he lost. Mm. He lost in the end, but he only lost because Joe Biden got so many votes, right? He did, he communicated on it totally on his own terms all the time. Yeah. Now, I think that makes it harder for the media, easier for the politician. 
And I think the British media need to be really careful about the way that's going here. Mm, yeah, that's really interesting. That's really interesting. So moving on to object, mm. the, the hardest question. Um, it is the hardest. Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? Yeah, so, so tell me, what, what object has impacted your life? I'll tell you what I've gone for. I've gone for a statue of Clement Attlee in the central lobby. Brilliant. Commons. Yeah. And the reason I've done that is that when I back, you know, we're talking about what it's like being a, a journalist today compared to then. When I was a journalist on the mirror covering politics, I would reckon I spent a quarter of my time in the Commons chamber, maybe a bit less. And then the rest of my time was split fairly evenly between my office, being on the phone and writing, uh, wandering around the place, literally just wandering around, bumping into people. Mm. But my settled place where I would be several hours a day was the central lobby. And I always leant against the plinth of the statue of Clement Alley. <laughs> I don't know whether... And I, I just and, and the other person who was similar to that, Tony Bevins of the Independent, who was a great journalist and sadly died way too young, but he was a great journalist. I mean, God, we could do with people like him today. He would he would not let these people away with the stuff they're getting away with at the moment. He read everything. He was obsessive about fact. He if he got a story, he just kept at it and at it and at it. Mm. Um, and he and I used to kind of vie for. <laughs> who stood with Clement. And of course, part of the reason was because he was like, you know, a Labour Prime Minister. and I, I was on the mirror. I was going to stand by the Labour guy. It was also quite near to the Labour Whip's office. Mm. And the other thing was the other, the most famous statue in there is the one of Churchill. Yeah. In the, on the end, just in the entrance into the chamber. And a lot of MPs, particularly the Tories, they do this thing where they touch his foot. Yeah. As they go, half disappeared by now. Yeah, so the the the, the where that's happened, the the, the colour is completely different now. Yeah. Um. So I just used to watch them do that, and I'd say, <laughs> I look up at Clement and say, "Yeah, you were the one." <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so people knew where to find you as well. So it's very clever. Yeah, yeah, because and of course that's the other massive difference between then and now. You know, if you left the office, I used to have an arrangement with the police in the central lobby that if my office wanted to catch me, I would tell them that, and they would phone the, the police number. And, this, the, 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 and they'd say, hey, phone for you. Um, because yeah. you didn't have, you know, I can't remember when mobiles first came in. I suppose actually, uh, if you're talking objects, I think mobile a mobile phone for most people now is an object, isn't it? You can't do anything without it. No. You know. I mean, whereas back then, I can remember the very, very first time I used a mobile phone was in the, oh, was it the 87 or the 92 election? I can't remember which. But I remember being in Barnsley and I remember we, I was on Neil Kinnock's campaign and I remember there was about 20 journalists, you know, got off the bus. Neil was off doing a walkabout, doing a visit. And we had a bigger crowd watching us because we all had these new mobile phones which were the size of briefcases. <laughs> yeah. People were coming out to look at us on our phones as we were. Yeah. They were like, they were literally, it's like carrying a suitcase. And you, you plugged it in, you got the phone out, and it, the charge lasted about 20 minutes. And now we've got these bloody things. I mean, the things you can do Good now. and bad, yeah. yeah. Good and bad. Good. But yeah. I'll tell you what, though, being a journalist back then, mm. you know, you had to find phone boxes everywhere. Yeah, to file the copy taker and get all the, the literals and the you know whereas now you know and I think one of the hardest things for journalists now they have to tweet they have to blog they have to do mm. so they're being bombarded with stuff the whole time on WhatsApp yeah. messages and you know I think it's I think it's hard to be a journalist these days yeah very hard and and makes it you know takes up all this time probably that you can't then maybe delve into the detail like you just referred to tony Bevin, yeah i think it's really, i think it's really hard i think yeah. i think it's um and i think also they've become i mean some you know it's very hard now i think if you're a journalist to, to get the time to really 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 work on a story and really get you know into the detail and so you know the, and and i think that what social media has done to conventional journalism is it's, it's made the pressure 
to get the story first far greater than the, than the pressure to get the story right. Yeah, that's interesting. That's so, um, part, isn't it? <laughs> you um, you're often uh, compared to uh, Malcolm Tucker, aren't you? As in, people sort of assume that it's sort of loosely based on on your character and things, and just more generally, obviously, your your profile has has always been enormous, and you know, still is, which is quite interesting in in and of in and of itself. But um, how much in your experience is is Westminster like for thick of it, and, and sort of what what of anecdotes that you've experienced that you think would would uh, work in a show like that? Or did you did you listen to the um, uh, the episode of my the podcast to do with my daughter Grace with Aisha Hazarika? No, not no, I will. <coughs> we have a listen because Grace asked her that question. Did she about Ed working with Ed Miliband? Oh yeah, and she said. Can you hear these dogs going mad? Yeah, that's all right, though. Don't worry. Sure. Yeah. Um, they're not mine, by the way. My dog just snores at my feet. <laughs> um, and Aisha said it was like the thing of it every single day. And she, she told some hilarious stories, right? Uh, I would say there are elements that definitely, look, I swore a lot. Malcolm Tucker swears a lot. Mm. I basically saw my job as trying to keep the government on track and the media in check and I'd say that's what Malcolm Tucker sees saw his job as well um and yeah there were bits of it that were that were crazy I remember there was one of my favorite episodes in the thick of it was when a minister went to announce something he he bumped into the prime minister and uh said and of course the genius of the thick of it is you never see the prime minister right he bumped into the prime minister and um had this idea for a policy and the prime minister said yeah that's some that's the kind of thing we should be doing right which the minister took as a green light to go and do so they went away and they prepared a press release and they announced that they got a visit do you remember yeah and I think it was down in Swindon or somewhere they were going to do it in a school, a and, school yeah. and so they're on the way and it's and they, they pre-brief it because Malcolm has said you know you should always pre-brief the story and get two bites of the cherry so he hears this thing that they're going to do and he says, what the hell is this about? Phones the guy up and says, what are you talking about? I said, but the Prime Minister said, this is the sort of thing we should do. He said, what? He said, this is the kind of thing we should do. Yes, should. Not that we will. Not that we can. Not that we will. Should. Well, not, where, where, how do you take that as the go-ahead to do something? Anyway, <laughs> and off you go. So then he says, but Malcolm, we've announced it. We'll fucking unannounce it. And then, of course, he unannounces it. All the press, meanwhile, have been encouraged to go down to this place yeah. to cover this live event where he makes a speech of zero significance, says nothing. And then he's in the car with his spads looking really depressed on the way back. And he gets a phone call from Malcolm. He says, good news. Prime Minister really likes this. Changed his mind. <laughs> but we've announced it. Well, fucking re-announce it. Now, I'm not saying anything like that ever happened, right? But... There were moments where, yeah, there were moments. That's a great impression, Alistair. <laughs> yeah, I said loosely inspired. I think I might remove the word loosely. Well, I once did a, I once did a charity swear off with Peter Capaldi. Did you? Oh, awesome. Yeah, I, 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 and, and the, the problem with it was that before he got to the podium, I went first, I didn't realise that the whole thing was being beamed around this this trading house where we were and they had a crash oh. and I had been F, 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 F. I actually used, I think I've got 11 Fs into one sentence, which made perfect sense. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that was a bloody, that was a thick of it moment as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. there were definitely thick of it moments. So what are your favourite, if you, I mean, it must be so many because you there's so many years um, and so many experiences and, you know, key historical moments that you've been through, but what are the sort of the real highlights or funny or moments that you reflect on or, you know, when you, like when you, the group you just described come together for dinner, right. like what okay. are the moments you memorise that you can publicly share? <laughs> well, I think, I think on the serious side, I'd say number one, by a mile, Good Friday Agreement. Mm. One of the many reasons I get so angry about Brexit. Mm. 
um, that was like magical, really was just extraordinary because yeah. it, it felt like something impossible was happening, which is an amazing feeling. Um, funny enough, Kosovo was, because I feel with Kosovo that that was something where I felt that the skills that I have became really central and fundamental because it actually became almost, it was like, I know it was a war, it was a military situation, but actually we were losing, if you like, the, the, the PR battle around the world mm. because we were up against somebody in Milosevic who had complete control of his own media and therefore that gave him a lot of control over our media as well. They could That's only operate in a certain mm. way. So that was, that felt, I remember when Milosevic fell, that that felt quite a big moment. And, you know, I'd say the, I, I'd say the elections, but I never really enjoyed the elections because I was always so exhausted mm. and, and, um, and then there were, there, I'll tell you one moment that was just pretty extraordinary, was one of the first trips to the White House when there was about, there's only about 20 of us in the room. And we were being entertained by Elton John and Stevie Wonder. Awesome. <laughs> and I remember Fiona was with me as well, because she was, you know, working with Cherie. And so there's Bill and Hillary sitting in the front and Tony and Cherie, and there's Fiona and I sitting behind them. And I mean, like Stevie Wonder, love. Elton John, absolute ledge. Don't get much better than that. And we're sit I'm sitting looking at Fiona and said, this is, what the fuck are we doing here? <laughs> It's ridiculous. So that was like, a, that was enough. I remember Fiona had exactly the same sensation when, because um, Fiona's always been a big Beatles fan and Cherie was doing stuff with Paul McCartney at a certain point and Paul McCartney came to number 10. And I was actually doing a briefing in the cabinet room of, I think it was the Sunday papers about Sunday. I can't remember who it was. I think we might've been waiting for Tony. And Fiona and Cherie brought Paul McCartney in. I'll never forget, the guy from the News of the World was there, who I think started his career on the Liverpool Daily Post, and he was like, Paul McCartney walked in, and it was like, he almost fainted. Um, so you sort of get moments like that. Yeah, um, you get some real amazing moments working number 10. And then, and then there, here's, a, here's a good, here's a good, here's a good think of it moment. Uh, <laughs> There was some story that was happening. I, I can't even remember what the story was, but it was one of those human interest stories that became like a massive talking point, okay? And somebody who was not famous one day suddenly became the person that everybody in the country was talking about the next day. And it was something to do with ch children who'd been snatched. And I can't remember the detail of the story, but I can remember uh, eventually they were doing, there was sort of, put in front of the cameras. There was nothing to do with us. It was just sort of going on out there. And I can remember we were all sitting in the office watching this on, on, live on, on the 24-7 on the news. And, um, <laughs> and one, of our, one of the women in our office says, oh, God, look at those poor children. Those poor children. And Hilary Kaufman, who worked for me, she said, <laughs> I know. Imagine being brought up to think that's an acceptable backdrop to a photo. <laughs> because there's like, it was, I can't even remember what it was, but it was like, you know, sort of chaotic, messy scene behind them. And so you get moments like that where you just, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's only about 30 people in the world who will even understand why that is so funny. Yeah. Like, it was absolutely brilliant. Imagine being brought up to think that's an acceptable backdrop. <laughs> Backdrops are key. And they certainly yeah. are. They certainly are. Oh, I'll give you another. Listen, here's mentioning as Aisha, and, mm. and, and this one allows me to plug volume eight of the diaries as well, which yeah, <laughs> there's a bit in there where we're up in Scotland for the referendum, the Scottish referendum, and Grace, my daughter, was up because she was just wanted to sort of be part of the action and go out clubbing and Scotland and all this sort of stuff. <clears throat> anyway, I'm quite an early to bed person. And so I went to bed at about quarter to 10 and Grace uh, went out. I fall asleep, right? Next thing I know, I'm sort of vaguely conscious and vaguely aware that there's somebody in my room and I think, oh, I must be Grace, just so, you know, she's got a key for my room. And um, 
<laughs> look up at Ed Miliband sitting on the edge of our bed. <laughs> and Grace is behind me going, I couldn't stop him. I couldn't stop him. And what had happened was she got downstairs. She bumped into Ed. Ed said, oh, is, is your dad here? Yeah, yeah he's, we're, we're, we're staying in the same hotel. Oh, I need to talk to him. I need to talk to him about how the referendum's going. I need to talk to him. Well, he's asleep. No, really, Grace, look, it's only 10 o'clock. He can't be asleep by now. You can't be asleep. And anyway, I was fast asleep. And it was quite, I can remember it was quite well. I was just lying on top of the bed, just wearing a pair of boxer shorts. And there's Ed. And, and do you know the thing about Ed? This is so funny. Is that he didn't even acknowledge the kind of weirdness of it. He just went, <laughs> he just went straight, straight into in. it. Straight in. How do you think we're doing? I said, well, <laughs> what does we mean here, Ed? <laughs> that's Grace very is, funny Grace just sort of said sorry and went back out clubbing. I remember meeting your daughter very briefly on the well the, the election night of Britain's Stronger in Europe the, the referendum vote she is really cool she is very very cool oh god didn't she know it though honestly <laughs> so, well, you know yeah. what I find what I find now is I'm, we did Grace and I on our podcast we interviewed Fiona this week and which I know sounds a bit weird, but it was actually quite interesting the way it panned, panned out. But I get all everywhere I go now. Oh my god, Fiona's amazing. Oh my god, Fiona wrote a chapter in the book I did about depression, right? And I get all these letters saying, "Oh my god, you're so lucky to have Fiona." Oh my god, what you've done to deserve Fiona. So I get all that, and now I get people like you said, "Oh, Grace is amazing." Anyway, Grace has said that her you're double lucky. Clearly, you're double. No, lucky. no, I am. I am very lucky. <laughs> I'm lucky in. I'm lucky in all my my kids. My yeah. Son. Very cool. So just um, to finish off with some quick fire questions. Well, uh, now, you've already given us quite a lot of advice here, but what would you um, what what piece of advice would you give our listeners? And um, yeah, what, what, what piece of advice would you give our listeners? Uh, are they all employed? No idea. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say, There's no way of knowing. <laughs> but respect, respect your superiors at work. But not so much that you think you couldn't improve what they're doing. Interesting. Um, other advice: drink a lot of water. Yeah. Uh, if you see a banana, eat it. <laughs> and and your your uh, I remember picking up somewhere you had uh, the saying: "By failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail." That was that used Benjamin, to sit Benjamin, in your Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin, I used to sit on your desk. Is that right? Yeah. And I'll tell you another one that's up there. And it goes back to what we were saying about teams. Harry Truman. It's amazing what a small group can achieve, provided nobody cares who gets the credit. Yeah. 100%. I'll give you another one. See if you remember this one from the book that you claim you've read so closely, Winners. Who said Think in Ink? Oh, God. Richard Branson? Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> well you should see how many like corners i'm like <laughs> oh fair enough that does look like a properly that has been read, read. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah no thinking ink was a poem by marilyn monroe and that's on my wall as well yeah. oh gosh that's very good and so who would you say is your favorite non-labor politician sort of current current politician oh favorite non-labor current politician I mean, during the Brexit debate, I became very, very fond and very respectful of Anna Soubry, Dominic Grieve, uh, and they got the boot. Mm. And that just shows you that somebody as you know smart and clever as them has got no place in the Conservative Party. Ditto Ken Clark, ditto Nick Soames, and all these guys. It's just terrible. Um, so they don't count, presumably, as current because they're out of Parliament. Yeah, I guess so. so. Yeah. Probably in that case, I'm probably going to go with Caroline Lucas then. Yeah. Another uh, guest on my show for people who haven't listened to it yet. Okay. So, um, yeah. I'm, do, do, have, give me other names that have been chosen by Labour people. Um, I think Tom Tugendhat has been. Um, gosh. Uh, well, I like him. Um, Nicholas Soames. Yeah. I like, um, I'll tell you who I do quite rate when I hear him pop up on the radio and the telly is um, Tobias Elwood. Yeah, yeah, good guy. Um, 
But I, I, but what I like about Caroline is that she's just absolutely still sticking up and putting the boot in over Brexit and going wrong, which it is. I wasn't happy about Labour supporting the deal. Um, and and also I saw in those, you know, in those people's vote meetings, I just thought, yeah, she's um, she's impressive. Yeah, she is impressive. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So final question. Actually, this is such a such a down. I was going to say biggest bugbear in politics. We're not going to ask. That's too too depressing. Let's biggest um, bugbear. Biggest bugbear in politics. Yeah, it's a bit bit of a downer. So let's let's end on a positive note. Let me try and uh, think of a fun question. Um, what's been the, the highlight as far as there could can be in sort of quite a very difficult year of uh, of the lockdown? Well, it's been the highlight probably. Well, I brought two books out. Yeah. Um, but no, that's not the highlight. You serenaded highlight your been... neighbours, which went viral across the world. Yeah, it did. But I'm a bit. I, I, do you know? I was always ambivalent about that. Yeah. I, I, I serenaded the neighbours with my bagpipes because we've got this nurse next door. I always felt the clap for carers thing was an, a piece of political exploitation by the government, ultimately. Um, and I think that's been even though it wasn't. I know it wasn't their idea, yeah. but I think the way that they came out and every week there's Johnson, there's Sunak, there's Hancock. And I just thought that, you know, I bet you this lot don't give them a decent pay rise. And here we are a year later, they're not giving them a decent pay rise. Um, now, I think two things, three things I'd say, they come to mind. The first is that it has been quite a revelation after 42 years together to know that Fiona and I have managed to survive a year with each other's company that has actually been on balance okay. Uh, <laughs> and in fact, on balance better than okay. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing has been the fact that the dog has been so happy that we're both here all Aww. the time. Yeah. Um, but the other thing is the fact that I've done these back to languages. I've done, because I lost so much of my German, I've done these two Goethe Institute courses. Uh-huh. And cool. ich habe mein Deutsch uh, nicht Nicht total, aber viel Deutsch habe ich äh, zurückgebracht. Und ich habe äh, letzte, Mo- äh, vor, wenigen Mo- vor einigen Wochen habe ich mein erstes Interview auf Deutsch äh, live im Fernsehen gemacht. Well, I think Mr. Webster would be incredibly proud. Oh, well remembered. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, Alistair, thank you so much for coming on to what we no, did. I really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. Now, one of my first encounters with Alistair Campbell was when I was working at Britain's Wrong in Europe and he visited the office a day after Tony Blair did. And this was a few days in the run-up to the election day. And Tony Blair had arrived and said, you know, you guys are all fantastic and you've worked so hard and you deserve to win and you will win and rah-da-rah, you know, very, very positive and upbeat, rallying the troops. Alistair Campbell came in and said, now I hear my old boss Tony was here yesterday. Now, I bet you he was all positive and said you're going to win. But, you know, the thing you need to know about Tony is he's a great front man, but he knows fuck all about campaigning. And I'm telling you, I've been travelling up and down the country and speaking to countless people. And I'm telling you, it is on a knife edge. I'm not sure we are heading for victory. And you guys have to pull out all the stops in the next 48 hours. And it was a really tough and honest um, account. And of course, he was proven right afterwards. But it was it was very funny, I thought, how he described um, uh, his boss and the the difference in attitude and, and message that, that we received that day. Anyway, if you enjoyed that episode, please do leave a review and um, subscribe. And of course, tell all your friends and family. And I would also love to hear who the people are in your life that you think have inspired your thinking and possibly politics. So get in touch via Twitter using the hashtag WWYT for what were you thinking or tag me. I'm on um, at Laura Round. And I just want to finish uh, with a final message from WaterAid because this year the UK is in a unique leadership position as it hosts the G7 and the COP26 Climate Summit. And our convening power should drive a global investment for COVID recovery and for climate resilience. 
as it hosts the G7 and the COP26 Climate Summit, and our convening power should drive global investment for COVID recovery and for climate resilience. And that is why WaterAid has been working with HRH Prince Charles to launch the Resilient Water Accelerator as part of his Sustainable Markets Initiative. This joint public-private initiative seeks to unlock more climate finance so that everyone everywhere can adapt to the effects of climate change. For more information on WASH and WaterAid's work, please visit washmatters.wateraid.org. Thank you and until next time.